Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family. Number one, uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. And welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast. I'm Refugee Welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Allison Duval. And I'm Kendall Martin. Thanks for tuning in for episode three. This podcast is an offering from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the Refugee Resettlement and Welcome Ministry of the Episcopal Church. You can learn about our work on our website, www.episcopalmigrationministries.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read all of Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at www.goodbookclub.org or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Good Book Club. This week, the Good Book Club takes us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, through chapter 11, verse 13. We're so excited to welcome the Reverend Jean-Baptiste Nagangwa, Director of Transition Ministry for the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts, to the podcast. He'll offer our reflection today on this portion of Luke's Gospel. Following his reflection, we'll chat with him further about the history of Rwanda, where he was born. We hope you enjoy this week's reflection. Friends, the text for today contains many parables, healings, and teachings, all by Jesus. I'm going to take a few minutes to reflect upon some of them and to come up with some lessons. After Jesus was anointed by a sinful woman whose faith had saved, he traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He started a movement composed by few regular men and women, a movement that grew to spread across the whole world. Today, our world is full of disturbances and distractions, the rocks, thorns, walls, natural calamities, and so on and so forth, that collude to prevent God's word and God's calling from taking root and bearing fruit. However, we are assured that when we cry out for help, somehow storms are calmed down. I thank God that EMM got it already and has decided to do the right thing. Jesus exhorts us to function as light, to go out into the world and proclaim the good news of love and compassion to use the gifts that God has entrusted unto us. We need to be the light to the hungry, to the stateless, to the asylum seeker, to the oppressed, as well as to the oppressor. Jesus asks us to be the voices of the voiceless. Remember, we are Jesus' mother, his brothers, and his sisters when we do welcome a stranger in our midst and when we put our resources together to help the needy. 
Jesus' mission is about choosing regular people, empowering them, and sending them to tell the story. The vision of his ministry is about radical welcoming and ethical leadership of his followers. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest, he says. During this time and age when wars and all sorts of life destructions are found all of around us, we are called to raise the dead, to heal the sick and the world, and to feed the hungry. When Jesus and his disciples were about to go through the Samaritan village, heading to Jerusalem, Samaritans refused to welcome them. Our natural human tendency is to follow our traditions that are not always that good. This reminds me of a country that went through a terrible war that forced people to flee for their lives. While fleeing, they were so mistreated in those foreign lands to the point that they were even blamed for some natural misfortune like drought that would occur in those lands. What would you expect from those mistreated people? Their natural reaction would be to say like James and John, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But no, that is not the Jesus way. Jesus prefers to go to another village. It is costly to follow Jesus, yes, but it is worth it. The way of Jesus is peace, love, forgiveness, and compassion. Sometimes it is refraining from using the destructive power that one might have. That is the way of Jesus of Nazareth. His mission is about breaking down the walls that divide. He teaches that generosity is a part and parcel of God's mission. As EMM welcomes refugees and gives them back a sense of life and hope that they've lost once uprooted from their motherlands, EMM leaves out that generosity. EMM has understood Jesus' meaning of love. Love God, love neighbor, as the Good Samaritan did. Friends, as I move to my conclusion, I would like to say this. During this time when the world is messed up by wars, hatred, and, and so on and so forth, let us strive to make a difference and try to follow Jesus' way. Let us work towards building bridges and tearing down what divides us. Today, let us proclaim the good news of God's kingdom of peace, love, compassion, and humility. Thank you for listening. May God bless you. Amen. I particularly love what Jean-Baptiste says about Jesus choosing regular people and empowering them to go out and share God's love. Yeah, I really love how he said that Jesus exhorts us to function as light. And I noticed too how he mentioned how Jesus' followers are called to ethical leadership. That's a theme that he spoke to at great length in our conversations with him. It was very special to get to spend an hour with Jean-Baptiste to prepare for both this week and for next week's episodes. While he is currently Director of Transition Ministry in the Diocese of Massachusetts, as we said, Jean-Baptiste spent his early years in Rwanda, where much of his extended family still lives. 
After he received a certificate in accounting and economics in Ruhengeri, Rwanda, he went on to complete his Bachelor of Divinity degree at St. Paul's United Theological College in Lemuru, Kenya in 1998. He was ordained to the priesthood in the Anglican Diocese there. In 1999, he moved to Boston, where he completed his master's degree in theological studies at Harvard Divinity School in 2001, and later his doctorate in ethics and missions at Boston University in 2008. On today's episode, we speak with him about his book, Overcoming Cycles of Violence in Rwanda, Ethical Leadership and Ethnic Justice, which explores theological and ethical models for relationship that could be useful in curtailing centuries of violence in that nation. You can learn more about Jean-Baptiste in the blog post we are releasing with this episode at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog. Jean-Baptiste, we are so grateful to have you with us today. And in preparation for next week's longer form interview, we would love to talk with you about your book, Cycles of Violence in Rwanda, Ethical Leadership and Ethnic Justice. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Could you start by giving us a sense of the history? Sure, I would try it uh, because the history, the history of Rwanda is approached in, in different ways by different people depending on what they want to uh, reach. Uh, so there are some people who would prefer to start history of Rwanda with uh, 1999, I mean 1959, when... Uh, we had a revolution, and many people died, or and others fled, and and then that changed the political landscape in Rwanda. There are some others who want to start it, maybe even by 1990, when uh, RPF in attacked Rwanda, and started another uh, cycle of violence. And then there are also some others who. Want or even want to start it with 1994 when RPF defeated the government that was there then and then installed its own leadership and now they might they are claiming to say that uh, Rwanda got um, it, it, the people got back into its own pe- people the Rwanda got back in, into the hands of its own people so and there are some others who would prefer to go back and look into history as it was taught way, way back, and, and they say maybe for over 400 years ago, and so on and so forth. So my what I would like to say to do personally is kind of bring those views together and talk about how I, I, I prefer to... I want to put together those views so that we can uh, people who are who are listening and hearing what I'm saying can take their own make their own judgment. It is said that Rwanda uh, was inhabited way way back. People don't know, and some some writers uh, say that because Rwanda has three ethnic groups, and it is believed by it was inhabited. By those three ethnic groups, three three stages. The first twelve, who are a small minority, very very small population, it is believed that it's the first population that have inhabited Rwanda. Then it was followed by Hutus, 
uh, when uh, that was the largest population in 1990. I don't know about today with what happened with the genocide in 1994 and the, the aftermath of that and the killings that, that continue to happen even now. So I don't know if it's still majority or not. But then it was. Then the third group that inhabited Rwanda was Tutsi uh, that came after. That's what history had been telling us where, when I was growing up. Then by that time, I would say each group came and had its own leadership. And there, it's believed that there was a kind of uh, some... Some, some payment that happened between uh, Toa and Hutu to be able to, to inhabit and cohabit, to live together. And then the third group, when the third group came, they kind of, uh, with their leadership, uh, by some using the carol, they were their carol herders, they had cows and everything, so they were able to, 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 to find a way of uh, uh, kind of dominating the race of the population and then their king now became the king of Rwanda and there was there were wars that expanded Rwanda from the central small uh, here to the whole country that we know today actually even beyond what we know today because sometime back in Berlin there was that conference of Berlin that divided the African the African continent uh, as as colonizers were uh, sharing this continent, so then with I am calling those wars that expanded Rwanda into one the way we know it today as one of the cycle of violence. And then when the colonizers came, but first Germany, and then uh, when they were defeated during the World War Two. Then Beribians took over under the mandate of uh, the Society of Nations, which later became U United Nations. So when they came, they, they wanted to, to they use the system that was there to re to establish their leadership. So they kind of reinforced the the, the, the form of leadership that was there, and made it very more formal because they now introduced reading, writing and everything. So they make they made that formal and used it to continue to expand their leadership and to and that's when actually they 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 put together Rwanda and the Burundi and they called it Rwanda Burundi. So uh, with that in mind these colonizers came with missionaries, the first being the Roman Catholic uh, Church. With these missionaries, they introduced education, which we are grateful as Rwandans. They introduced, they introduced education, they introduced everything. And then when they, with that education, some people came to learn that the status quo, what we had in Rwanda, what they had in Rwanda then was not right. That's when they, they started thinking, saying, well, this is not right. We need to change uh, the system of leadership. We need to change and, and be uh, like 
what we are reading in history, what, what happened in France, what happened. So they, they wanted to, to change that. And that's when the revolution started with multi-party system. And there was a UN-led national election that led to defeating the system of leadership that was there, which was the kingdom, the kingship. So the king was defeated. He fled. First of all, I think he was in, in Tanzania and in neighboring countries, in, in Kenya, and then fled to U.S. Uh, he was living in D.C. until two, two years ago when he died there. So with that, the leadership turned from Tutsi, who were reading for all those 400 years, then it came into the hands of Hutus, who led that revolution. I call that another cycle of violence. Many people died, others fled, others, they, they saw their houses being burned down, and so on and so forth. And when this new leadership came into power, some of those people who fled were not happy, then they started organizing themselves to come back. So they led some, some, some series of attacks on Rwanda, and that was called the attacks of Inyenzi. And some people tend to call Inyenzi uh, as those cockroaches, but it's not true. It, it, was, it, it was an acronym that they gave themselves when they were attacking. So that I call another cycle of violence. Although it did not, it did not change the leadership, but people died, and others were mistreated, and so on. And then in 1972, when the military wanted to lead a coup to overthrow the government that was there, they started some violence in the country, in the schools, directed to Tutsis. And, and some, some were killed, others fled. And then the, the leader of the military then said, okay, because this is happening, then he had a pretext of having a coup d'etat, and he took power since 1973 and led the country until 1994 when he was killed, uh, when he was coming from Tanzania from a, a peace talk, and his aircraft was shut down. He led the country on his own way, and, and everybody was not happy. That's, that's a fact. That's why in 1990, another cycle of violence came up, which was led by RPF, Rwandese Front. So they, they came attacking Rwanda from Uganda. It's, it's been a four-year war. People they died, and, and then to end up by when the president aircraft was shut down, then that started triggered the genocide. And that genocide, then when it was decided it's a genocide, it was called Rwandan genocide, because both Tutsi and Hutu were killed, but mostly Tutsis were killed because of their ethnicity, ethnic group belonging, and they were targeted as, as such, and Hutus, many of them who were opposed to that, also were killed. And I think that's why they called it Rwandan genocide. But the last month, I think, no, no, yes, last month, the Rwandan led another, another campaign to change the name 
So it's no longer that that, that name has changed at UN. It is uh, the genocide against Tutsis. So it's another history that's changed, that's being rewritten now. That's really, generally speaking, the history of Rwanda and its series of cycle of violence. All the time, uh, there is a leadership, there is a violence, the leadership change into another leadership, then after that, some, sometimes there is another violence, and the leadership changes, and so on and so forth. That's what's happening. And even today, when you look at what's happening in Rwanda and outside, and it, it, politically speaking, I, I am afraid something might happen again, another cycle, another violence might occur. So that's, that's like a long story. That's what I, I can say about the, the background on, on Rwanda. You covered so much in such depth in such a short period of time. That was so helpful in giving us context to understand what's going on now. I, I wasn't even aware that just recently the the name of the genocide had changed. Um, I understand that in your book you speak about the need to install, to lift up and install ethical leadership to end these cycles of violence. Hmm. Could you speak to that, especially reflecting upon what you what you just said, that you fear another cycle of violence could break out? How should ethical leadership be installed? Thank you for that question. It's um, a bitter pill to swallow because what I say, what I what I see in Rwanda, all leaders have been using their ethnic group to maintain themselves on power by using that, 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 that simple thing to convince their kinship, kinsmen and people to say, if you, not, you don't support me, then you are in trouble. So that's what has have happened during those cycles of violence. And now the current leadership, the way I see it, it's more than that. You know, they are, it's like they are telling their kin's people, saying, if you don't support us, then the genocide that happened in 1994 will occur again and they will come back to finish you. So help me. And now telling all Hutus, they're telling them, even the kids who, who were born after the genocide, they are asking them to, 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 to confess and repent on behalf of their ethnic group of what happened in 1994, kind of making them uh, feel guilty of what happened as if it's their own thing. And that was, was done by other people. They were, they were not part of it. So they claim to, to try to erase the term ethnic group, but practically speaking, what they do, it's, it's different from what they say. So that concerns me, and that is not ethical. And when I say that we need ethical leadership there, the way I define ethical leadership is that leadership that knows to read the story, to know the story, to make it their own, and use it to change, to create a new story that's going to, be, to benefit the common good, everybody to benefit from that story. But that's not happening. And that's, as I read in the heart, because I was born in 1966, so I, 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 I saw 
a part of the First Republic in Rwanda. I saw the whole uh, Second Republic in the, the President Juvenile Habyarimana. I saw it. I was, I, I was old enough to know what was happening. I'm seeing what's happening today. There is no eth ethical leadership. So to have that ethical leadership, either those we have need to change their mindset and act accordingly, or they have to, to go and we have a new breed of leadership that comes up to lead the country. And I'm saying it's hard for this leadership we have to be able to change uh, because even the constitution there, they have set up where they, when they took power, they, they have changed it three times for, for, the, for the president to, to remain on power. So that shows that it is, it is going to be hard or tough for them to change into what I see being ethical leadership because they are, they, they are using that, what they have to maintain themselves on, the, on power. So any, in my book, I say all means possible should be used to change this leadership and then to install a new one that is really chosen according to democracy, but at the same time, people who are ready to apply what I'm calling ethnic justice. Because if they are not, they don't have that mindset of using or, or making sure ethnic justice is taken care of, it's going to be it's going to be that, that, that concept that people say, I would rather be led by a Tutsi, even if that person would be bad, rather than being bad, led by a good Hutu. Or I would rather be led by a, a, a terrible bad Hutu, rather than being led by a, tut, a good Tutsi. So that Rwandans need to get, to get over that. Well, thank you so much, Jean-Baptiste, for this background and context for our longer conversation with you on next week's episode. You're welcome. You spoke just a few moments ago about how important it is for ethical leadership to understand and know the story and create a new story. So we look forward to hearing your story next week. Thank you. We hope you'll tune in next week to hear our longer conversation with Jean-Baptiste about his life, how he came to the U.S., and about his ministry. It's a compelling interview. It's one of my favorites, but I've said that about every single one. Like every, every conversation we've had has just been so wonderful. So we thank you all for being with us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And before we go, we have some reminders and announcements for you. EMM is offering its next Love God, Love Neighbor training in Atlanta, Georgia, May 2nd through 4th. The training equips participants to be ambassadors, allies, and advocates for refugee welcome. Visit our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash LGLN, as in love God, love neighbor, to learn more. The registration deadline is March 19th, so make sure you sign up soon. Be a voice of welcome for newly arrived refugees through a virtual gift for friends or family. Show your support to our new neighbors with a tax-deductible gift that provides security and comfort during the first few months of transition. Order online, episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash gifts hyphen for hyphen welcome. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mawinda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammawindamusic.com. A huge thanks goes to today's reflection author, the Reverend Jean-Baptiste Nagangwa. Background information about Rwanda was also provided by Jean-Baptiste. 
His book, Overcoming Cycles of Violence in Rwanda, Ethical Leadership and Ethnic Justice, can be found in academic libraries. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home.